when you think about it, right, your tertiary education in university, sometimes it's too late to change people's mindset. Oh, yeah, them. you're right. You're right. I Absolutely. think it needs to start at a grassroots, right, from, you know, the primary schools, your secondary schools. They already need to start, you know, run things like hackathons and do some coding programs. And it needs to be part and parcel of your day-to-day education because then it becomes muscle memory. Mm. People will remember it, right? And, and I think then it's really when you can start seeing change happen. That's right. If you're going to wait until someone matures, it's 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 too late sometimes. Leopard Not for everyone spots. maybe, right? People can still turn things around. Yeah. But I think really to have a much bigger impact, I, I think the education curriculum needs to, to change, right? And you need to start giving people time, giving students time to, to explore, right? What they can do and, and, and to, to expose them to new technology, right? Um, I think that's probably the, the, the only way to do it. Yeah. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firo.co slash free. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Firo Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. MJ, today is going to be a slightly different flavor, right, MJ? Different flavor, but not any worse. Oh, no, anyway, it's going to be any better. <laughs> yeah. So today we have a Malaysianized Dutchman, as I will call him. I hope yeah. he <laughs> pun intended. Uh, and um, he's actually the chief innovation officer of uh, the Sunway Group. And uh, he's actually, uh, he has been around in Malaysia for quite some time as we will uncover through this podcast. And the objective of this podcast is really to understand the startup scene, the incubator scene, uh, and see how far Malaysian innovators have come through. So Matt, I can't even, I always can't pronounce your last name, Matt. Can, can you pronounce it for the audience for me? <laughs> <laughs> it's Van Leeuwen. Van Leeuwen, right? So, Van Leeuwen, yeah. And, and how do I pronounce the Matt, 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 is it Matthias? Okay. Yeah, it's Ma- it's Matthias. Matthias. Yeah. Matthias from here, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so Don't, much for being uh, on the show. Yeah, no, uh, nice to be here, John and MJ. And uh, and by the way, you call me Malaysian nice, which I think is uh, quite well pointed out. And, and to me, someone who's Malaysian nice, if you fulfill three characteristics. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Right? So if, first of all, someone who's Malaysian nice, if he eats... Nasi lamak for breakfast. Yeah. Not just nasi yes. lamak, but nasi lamak ayam goreng. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very Malaysian. When my, when my parents came here and saw me eating rice and fried chicken for breakfast, they thought I was crazy. You know? <laughs> Until so they that's tried what it, right? like 12 years in Malaysia does to yeah. you. And the second thing is like if you have had dengue. Oh, yes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You're definitely part of the, the Malaysian yeah, club. Yeah. And thirdly, someone who's married to a Malaysian wife or, uh, or a husband, of course, you know, like yes. for the ladies out there. Yes. Yes. Properly Malaysianized. Properly Malaysianized. And I understand your children even go to a, a Chinese school. That, that's where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You, they go, they yeah, wow, well, you, you've done your research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remember we had that chat I was asking. Oh, we had that chat before. You, you have a good memory. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Chinese school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, right. so. 
I'm happy to have a Dutchman, a Malaysianized Dutchman in Malaysia. And probably I'll start off the, the podcast by asking um, way back when you were still in Holland, uh, where, where do you grow up? What was a 15 year old Matthias like? Matthias, right? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You can call me Matt. You yeah, know, Matt, no yeah. <laughs> what was a 15 year old Matt like actually? Um, yeah, 15 years old Matt was not that different. Um, but one of the things, like when I was in secondary school, there was one thing that was like the most important thing to me, like the more important than anything else, uh-huh. uh, which was tennis. Oh, right. And and so, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know that about me, but I actually played uh, tennis on a national and at some point also international level when oh. I was in the Netherlands. So at some point when I was 15, I was in the top 10 for my age, uh, for my age group. And so really for me, when I was 15, I think even during school times or once I finished school straight away, I got on my bike, cycled for 20, 30 minutes to the train station, took a train ride for 45 minutes where someone picked me up. And then it was another 20 minutes drive to get to the tennis court where, uh, you know, one of the best players in that particular regions were being uh, coached. And so I did this every day. And so after school, I didn't have time to play with my friends, Ah. but uh, went play tennis and came back home probably 9, 9 p.m., had some food and went to sleep, right? And uh, while I was on the train, I did my homework as much as I could. But um, yeah, tennis was very central and it was really... Um, something that was cultivated in my family. So I'm a very, coming from a very close family with uh, one older brother and, and really even our holidays, right? Like our Easter holiday or summer holiday, it was all about tennis because wow. I went from one tournament to the next. And, and, and you know, my parents and my brother always had to follow me everywhere. And, and so very, very lucky that I got all that support. Um, and I think that those days also, you know, made me more competitive, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, really wanting to win and winning tournaments and that's, that stays, but it's now translated to winning in business as well. Okay. Right. So I, I think it's been um, an interesting foundation or grounding for me growing up in that sort of competitive tennis environment. Yeah. And, and, and what, why didn't you become the next uh, Djokovic? Yeah, I was, I, I should just follow up that. Like, yeah. is it, like, are you team Djokovic, Nadal or Federer? Yeah. Yeah, well, in my, my days, it was like Andre Agassi and oh, uh, Pete, Sampras. Pete Sampras, you know, like, right, so right, I'm yeah. a bit, I'm a bit older than you guys. Yeah, probably, yeah. But, uh, yeah no, um, actually, so when I was 17, I, uh, I got an arm injury oh. and, um, you know, like you have a go, uh, a tennis elbow. Ah, yes. have, so then you have yeah. like pain on the top of your arm, right? On your oh, elbow. Yeah. But I actually had a golfer's elbow, which is on the, the bottom part on your, your underarm. Oh, and so I got a lot of pain, but I still kept playing tennis and uh, it got worse and worse to a point that my parents took me to various hospitals to just get an opinion on like, can they fix this or not? Mm-hmm. And um, so after a few opinions, they, they, they told me that they can fix it. They can basically shorten that ligament that was like really badly inflamed. Okay. But it was a 30% chance that I would never be able to stretch my arm fully anymore. Oh my God. 30% okay. chance. And you know, like for 17, 18 year olds, almost going to university, uh-huh. my parents say, you know, just, you know, this, this is too much, you know, it's too much of a risk. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, uh, then I, I almost instantly quit after that. It was quite a, a big shock, right? Because someone who plays tennis every day to someone who goes to university and then 
explores other interesting thing of life, you know. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which which maybe you know is uh, after you know looking back in hindsight, maybe it's a good thing because some of my friends who did go further and wants to become a professional tennis player uh-huh. didn't really make it. I see. They got, you know, one of the maybe my one of my good friends they got to the number 150 position in the world. Okay. And you know, it's just like. Once you're 150 in the world, you can just pay your fees and your your travel and your hotels to go from tournament to tournament and your manager. Mm-hmm. But you can't really make a good living out of it. That's right. It's really if you're consistently in the top 100, top 50, where you can actually make a very good living and become rich out of it, right? And yeah. There's only very few that 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 can make it, like a Djokovic or a Sampras or Agassi. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad in a way that I. Uh, chose a different route and went to university and then started to do more business after that. I see. I see. So uh, MJ was asking Nadal or, yeah. or, or uh, Federer or Djokovic, which camp are you in? <laughs> if you still watch. Yeah. Um, well, Djokovic definitely out of favor now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, his recent sort of, um, yeah, involvements and, in, uh, and uh, being so outspoken about vaccination, I don't think that was a very, very smart move um, on, on his side. So, I mean, I love the elegance of Federer, right? Just the way he plays. It's just a flair and, you know, it, it, it just looks so easy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really enjoy watching Federer, but at the same time, Nadal is more like a, like a wild animal, right? He's like <laughs> slaughters people yeah, yeah. and he's much Bulldozer. more aggressive. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I like that too, but I actually love the the older generation as well. You know, like when you had Agassi, and ah. before that, he had like John McEnroe. Oh, yeah, McEnroe. Went all man. out, you know, yeah, on the court. Yeah. <laughs> Especially McEnroe, I always remember how he smashes rackets. Uh. I think that, that, exactly, that, that, yeah. that was my memory about McEnroe. <laughs> or scolding the Empire. Oh, right, yes. You know, yeah, exactly. It was just, I think it was more theatrical. You know, sometimes people, the plays become too serious, yeah. you know, like. Uh, that it's not so much fun to watch anymore. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so um, you went to uh, Rotterdam University, uh, or did I get it right? Utrecht, yeah. actually. U- yeah. Utrecht, Utrecht, Utrecht yes. right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you did business. Uh, what, what made you choose that profession and you know how did it turn out? Yeah, so initially, I actually, I, I wanted to do medicine, right? I wanted mm. to study medicine or or maybe rather my parents liked me to study medicine. You know? <laughs> I think probably very similar to like Asian families, yes. you know, that parents are, are are very important in making decisions like which, what, what subject you would study. I went to medicine, uh, but in the Netherlands, there aren't enough spaces, enough seats for the number of students that apply every year. I see. And, and so what you have is they have this lottery system ah. where you just get a number. And then usually maybe there's like more than a thousand students who apply. And there's only a few hundred spots, right? So you actually have to be lucky to be able to study medicine. And so for two years in a row, I, t- I, I tried my luck, but I wasn't lucky. I see. And, and at the same time, my brother is one year older. He, he, he was lucky. He had a really good number. Um, and, and, and he's a doctor now, a very, a very good doctor. He's actually in a, a, an intervention cardiologist in wow. the Netherlands. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but I, I'm actually glad that I didn't do medicine because I mean, Looking at me now, I'm a bit more afraid to go to hospitals, or, you know, or <laughs> afraid of diseases. And so maybe I'm, I'm not really the, the right person, you know, for it. So maybe it just happened for a reason that I, I didn't get enrolled into the program. Mm. But I was still interested in healthcare and 
uh, reading about it and uh, potentially finding, <clears throat> excuse me, solutions for uh, for healthcare, right? To take like science or technology and turning that into a business. Mm. <clears throat> so, so I started to do biomedical science, which is um, very much more like the yeah, the deeper science to learn about like DNA and learn about microbiology and, and all that, the neurology, all the subjects, right? And I really enjoyed that. But what I didn't like about that was going into the lab. Ah. I didn't like to do the experiments and all that. You know, it's just, just not for me. I made a lot of mistakes doing that. Okay. <laughs> I won't go into that. But uh, in my first year, there was a professor and he came in and uh, <clears throat> he came in front of the class and he told us that for all the biomedical science students, there was an opportunity to, after three years, after you've done your bachelor's, to continue to do a master's in what they call science and business. Oh, And, and this is exactly for people like me, right, who wanted to translate science, read about science, learn about it, but turn it into business. Mm. Right? And, and so I just had to sit out for three years and I just went through the, my bachelor's program. Of course, I enjoyed it, but again, the lab was not for me. But the two years after that, the learning about management, finance, entrepreneurship was really, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed those those years. And it was really, for me, a trend, a transition to, to think about, hey, I, I want to get into business. I want to do something, probably something in a biotech space, mm. uh, but I don't know what's yet. And, and, and so in my final year, I, I got an opportunity to go to the UK and, and actually study into Cambridge University mm. and, and, and do more of a applied research program in um, epidemiology, which is basically around statistics in healthcare. Uh, I learned a lot about diabetes and all that. But but really my time there in Cambridge was very interesting because it, it, I, I became exposed to entrepreneurship. Uh, I was involved in an entrepreneurship society for students. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we organized business plan competitions for very enterprising young, young people. And this is really where I, I met different people from different backgrounds, investors from industry, from, from the university, and, and, and really started thinking about, okay, you know, like I, I've got this background, I've got this science. Um, my friend, he has a, a medical background. Another friend was a, a mathematician. How can we combine these skills to solve some very big, uh, hairy problems in the healthcare industry, right? Mm. And that was really, for me, the starting point for my first startup that I did, which was my final year of, of university in, in Cambridge. I see. And and was that startup eventually commercialized in a way? Yes, yeah, it was. Actually. So we so we went through the business plan competitions, we raised some seed funding, uh, got some angel investors on board. And, and, and you know, what we tried to do was something quite tough because healthcare is usually led by like older people, people were more experienced. Correct. And, and so we were a bunch of like guys in our twenties, right? So what, what do we know, right? But yeah. we wanted to make a difference in the way that drugs uh, are developed, mm. right? So right now drugs go through a very rigorous uh, clinical trials, preclinical trials, and it can sometimes take 10, 15 years before a drug is being commercialized, Correct. right? And that would cost, a pharmaceutical company, anything between one to three billion or sometimes even more in yeah. US dollars. Yes. Right? And so we thought like, okay, that's interesting, right? Well, why would it take 10 to 15 years to get something to the market? Mm. And we figured out that one of the reasons why drugs fail and never reach the market is because they end up being toxic, right? They, they end up not being safe enough for people to, to use. Correct. 
But the problem is they only find this out in year eight, nine, or 10 mm. after you spend a few hundred million dollars already. Mm -hmm. So what if we come up with a software that can make those predictions on new drugs in development right out of the gates, right? In the wow. first few years. Mm, 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 mm. And, and, and really only focus on the ones that have a higher chance to succeed. I see. And so it was kind of an AI. We didn't talk about AI. We talked about predictive toxicology at the time, but mm -hmm. it was combining software and data, big data, and help pharmaceutical companies make predictions much better and cheaper and faster. And, and so we brought this to the market. We raised venture capital money. And that was ultimately also the reason why I ended up in Malaysia. Because, you answered my next um, question already. Good. Continue, please. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's but good. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> actually, there's actually two reasons why I ended up in Malaysia. One yeah. is love and one is business. So let All me right. talk about the business side. <laughs> okay. So the business side is like we, we when we were in Cambridge, we met some, uh, some VCs out of Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came over to the UK to scout for new technology startups that could potentially be uh, brought into this part of the world. Mm. Right? And, and I found it really interesting. And they, they really got to me at the right time because it was this dreary, rainy, cold winter uh, weekday, right, in the UK. It was a really terrible, very miserable day. Okay. And, 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 and so these Malaysians came over, they presented about what they're doing, what the vision is for the bioeconomy here in Malaysia. But all of that was all great. But the last slide really stuck with me, which was a nice, pristine beach, you know, with sunshine. And, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I need to get out of here. I, I need to go to this place, whatever it is. And, and, and so in the end, you know, after a lot of discussions, the, the VC uh, decided to invest in us. Um, we moved our headquarters to Malaysia, but still kept our... A data scientist in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, then we had a lab in South Africa that did a lot of testing for us. And, and so really built out an international company. Okay. Um, and, and and that's the, you know, we've, we've, we had to grow that right from, from here. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, of course we we face a lot of challenges on the way as well, you know, to, to get this, to get this out there. Yeah. So it was a very interesting, interesting time, you know, on how I ended up here in Malaysia. What 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 period of time was this? Was this uh, late 90s? Uh, I can't remember if I'm... Uh, when did you actually first step foot in Malaysia, actually? I came here, I mean, I, I moved to Malaysia in the end of 2009, so okay. 13 years ago. Okay. But I first started discussing with these Malaysian VCs back in like 2007, 2008. Ah, and this was right during the financial crisis, right? Yes, that, yes, exactly. You know, like any business or any startup was in trouble. Um, financial industry was in trouble. And you know, being in the UK, in a sector in biotech that is like one of the riskiest sectors you can imagine, yes. it was very, very difficult to raise any funding. And so that was one of the other reasons why we were lucky enough to raise some money from here, right? Mm. And, and expand our business. I see, I see. Um, so what... Be besides business that led you to Malaysia, also you have you you met you met your wife here. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, so I, I met my so my wife, uh, uh, well then girlfriend at the time. She also she was a PhD student in Cambridge. I an see. Engineer. I see. And uh, she was part of the entrepreneurship society as well, and, ah. and she was managing all the finance for the society, and I was doing more the business development and and um, and and she. I mean, interesting story. She was promoting this. Um, this MLM kind of thing. Huh. Um, it's called, uh, what was it called? This this vitamin C business. You know, uh, the, Shakely? Um, Is it Shakely or? No. Uh, Elkin, um, Mway? 
Gosh, sorry. No, no, no worries. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I was I was interested. I've got a biomedical background, but I was more interested to to meet her, right? To get time <laughs> with her. So so it's okay, let's go for coffee. And you know, she talked for three hours about the business and how I can make money through that. But I was not really interested in that. And <laughs> so it's just like, there we go. Well, continue. Let's watch a movie after this. So that, that <laughs> smooth, smooth. Did, 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 she, did, did she manage to sell you any vitamins? More importantly, <laughs> so in the end, I I didn't buy into that because otherwise the relationship would also not be on a good starting point, right? Otherwise, yeah. we say that oh, I I invested in it, and that's why she loves me back. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Despite not giving her the business, you still we still ended up dating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do um, have a question. Go, like go. Yeah. when you had the Malaysian visa that decide to put money with uh, your company, what, what do you think convinced them? And yeah. what would you say? I'm not sure if this is a question later down, but what do you no, say? No, go, go yeah. What advice would you give to like startups to convince VCs to, like how would you pitch to a VC essentially? At that point, yeah. Yeah, I know that's a very good question. And um, you would have to ask the VCs at that time what they saw in us. But, <laughs> but I, I think that what we brought was something quite revolutionary. Mm. You know, it was not, it was something very new in Cambridge, right? In the, in the, in the health tech cluster. So let alone in Malaysia, right? At mm. that time it was uh, super new. And, and, and we had some IP around it with a very strong team with, with co-founders who really knew their stuff, you know, and we were quite hungry to, uh, to build a business. And at the same time, we also managed to, to bring some mentors on board, right? Some people from the industry. Mm. And, and I think that was really important because being a bunch of young guys, again, you know, like it was really sort of felt like being looked down on sometimes. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, they're smart guys, but in business, your networks are also important, right? And, and right. how to open doors within big pharma companies. And so we, we managed to get some veterans on board uh, and, and ultimately... We recruited an, um, a guy who was, uh, I think, spent about twenty years in the in the you know the C C suite guy in the in the pharmaceutical industry, wow. and he became our CEO, right? I and then I think for the VCs, the team is always really important, right? Having a team who can execute, not just a team who's got a good idea or good technology, getting something in, into the market really requires. Uh, that that kind of experience sometimes, right? Or, and, and especially within this particular industry. So team team is very important. Market opportunity was there, right? Mm-hmm. Because none of the pharmaceutical companies figured it out how mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Spending tons of money, as I said, into the billions every for every drug. So the market opportunity was huge, right? And and potentially there was a business model that uh, could could attract them. Um, so so I think those are the the key ones. Team probably number one. Market opportunity very important too, and then having the right technology as well. Great. Yeah. Great. So, um, if I'm not mistaken, that is part of this company called uh, Simugen, right? Which was Simugen, yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> how um, did it, it? It says here that you left it in June 2014. So, how how did it pan out in the end after all, all these rounds or whatever? Is it is it now a, a product that is readily available in the market? Uh, how how is it shaped and how does it how did it turn out actually? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question, and you know, this is something I can probably talk about for an hour. But <laughs> it was it was it was not a happy ending for us. I see, um, because <clears throat> we worked with a lot of different suppliers. I, mean, I mentioned just now, right? Like our data team is in the UK. We had a lab team in South Africa, and here the business side is in, in Malaysia. 
And, you know, and then we had like supplies from around the world. And so the model that we built, the software and the AI was built around a, um, how to explain this in a very sort of easy to understand way, but it's built around a tissue model, like a, a cells, like a human cells. Right? Okay. okay. And they were supplied by a supplier from France, right? And as you can imagine, if you want to do, build a model, a data model, you need to have consistent supply of a particular cell model. Okay. Right. And, and and so all the algorithms was built with a prototype in place. We showed that we could make predictions with 95% accuracy. All up to then, the first few years, everything was going well. Mm-hmm. But then the supplier from France decided to change their cell model from a um, a live cell model to a frozen one. Oh. And 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 from a from a logistics uh, perspective, it makes absolutely sense that it's frozen because then you can ship it out right easily to to their customers. They can thaw it and they can use it. But for us, what it meant was that all the millions of dollars we invested into the algorithms had to be redone, recalibrated, oh, wow. right? Because it's a completely different model, and that didn't sit well with our VCs. And they said, "Well, guys, it took a few years to get here." Can you quickly come up with a uh, with a new model, right? That that works. And the answer was no, because we needed to to redo everything. We did some consulting work, and you know we we still use the the old model, but at some point it was discontinued, and so we really felt that really hard. And the, the key lesson was just don't put all your 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 eggs in one basket when it comes to your suppliers, right? Mm. So you should always diversify them and, and not and should not bet on one guy only. So I that see. was a, a very, very wow. hard lesson that we learned. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely need to meet up with coffee for you at this because I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of lessons as well and part of the nuance. But <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. once 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 you've done with Simujin, then you started off um, you know, do, doing these things in entrepreneur in residence for Camtech. So what 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 was that like? And 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 more importantly, how did that segue into this thing called Plat? Platform ventures, you Platform, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so Camtech um, uh, is in a, a company that was in Singapore, founded in Singapore by a friend of mine, okay. um, also a friend from from Cambridge, from the UK, okay. a Singaporean guy. Set up that company to really with a vision to help med tech, medical technology startups, mm-hmm. uh, get into the market. So it's kind of an incubator, if you like. Okay. And and so he invested some money into four startups. But he needed help to to sort of build some structure around it. And so with my background from spending years building a biotech company, I thought this was quite interesting for me to sort of broaden my horizon uh, and start looking at new technologies in, in, you know, maybe in the healthcare market, but in different segments. I see. Because when you do a startup, right, you really have to be zoomed into one particular field for a long time and be very obsessed about it almost. But uh, it can also be quite tiring after a while, and and you kind of it's nice to have a refresher and to sort of broaden your horizon. And so, so that was an interesting time, which really learned to work with other founders, uh, gave them some of my experience, and 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 this is really where accelerators started to become hot, mm. right? And so we set up one of the first accelerators in Singapore, uh, a very structured program through mentors, through some funding. And, and really help these founders get into the markets. Um, so, so yeah, it was a very, very interesting time. But uh, I, I was still living in Malaysia at that time, and I was uh, commuting like every wow. week. And, <laughs> and, and then in the second year, my wife gave birth to our first child, and and and, and you know, it became a bit harder, right, to do that the commuting. And so I decided to go back 
to Malaysia and, and, and focus on, uh, you know, in an, working in an organization here. And that's how I ended up in Platcom. I see. I see. And uh, maybe um, tell us uh, from Platcom to Sunway, I, I think probably in a nutshell, how, how did that, how did that happen? And, and was it the allure of Tansri Jeffrey himself or did you get headhunted? You know, uh, if, they, if there's a backstory to that. Yeah, so, so Platcom uh, at that time was set up under this agency in Vyasi, Malaysia, mm -hmm. uh, which was under the prime minister's office. And and um, the idea with Platcom was like, was how do we help universities, right? Mm. In Malaysia who are or are sitting on a lot of IP, right? Usually like patents, yeah. right? But a lot of these patents are, are sitting on the shelf, collecting dust almost, right? Correct. <laughs> because... Most of them never really see the light of day. They yeah. never get commercialized. Correct. And, you know, meanwhile, they spend a lot of money on the IP, protecting it, maintaining it, and, and, and so on, right? So you wonder, like, okay, what's the point, right? If you, if you don't really have a, an impact in it. So, so we started to look around different universities in Malaysia mm -hmm. and see how we can help them to, uh, to license these IPs into SMEs. Mm. And the idea was that the Malaysian SMEs, right, some of them were having a good business, but were lacking that sort of strong IP to really grow, right, to, to have that technology drive behind them. Yeah. And so we connected the dots in terms of, you know, finding IP for SMEs, to the, which could be like to digitalize their business or it could be to, to give them some strength in their supply chains. But we helped to... to to transfer this IP into these companies who would then go on to commercialize it. Mm. Because the universities, right, they have really smart scientists and researchers, but they don't have the business people to, to commercialize it. Precisely, yes. Right? So to set really good companies around it. SMEs know the business, but don't have the IP. Mm. And so we, we, we brought it to, uh, together. And in my time, I did like 25 license deals between uh, universities, Malaysian universities and SMEs. We, mm -hmm. we got them funded and some of them were quite successful in, in getting these to the market. And this is how I came to Sunway. So I came to Sunway because I met the vice chancellor of Sunway University. And, um, you know, same thing as I was meeting other universities in Malaysia, right? Mm. And I was looking at IP. It was still, as a private university, we didn't really dump a lot of money into like patenting, which I think is a good thing. Okay. But we're a lot more selective in, in terms of what's do we foul and, and what, what's, what is our core focus? Okay. But I, I, I shared with him some amount of my views on like what innovation within the university could be like and mm. how we can better connect to the industry. And, and the vice chancellor at the time said, well, that's interesting. Um, why, why don't you come and do it here? <laughs> so, so that's how I set up the innovation in Sunway University and, and, uh, quickly set up the innovation labs that uh, was now called uh, Sunway iLabs. Mm -hmm. And that Sunway iLabs is now five years old and has really uh, grown from strength to strength into different sides of the business. Yeah. Actually, it appeals me to, to, to the next question uh, quite eloquently because I was, uh, uh, um, how do I say, uh, my experience of getting my tertiary was purely uh, Malaysianized in a way. So I did my bachelor's degree uh, in a local university, my master's, well, uh, here as well, but the the the, the second masters was in uh, with Curtin. It's an off camp program, and what I noticed after coming up to industry was that there's not very close collaboration between the industry with the academia here, as compared to you know, you go to Europe. There's a lot I I feel you know from from yeah. my lens, it's very close knit. In America, it's very close knit, 
And in Malaysia, what 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 are your thoughts, Matt? I mean, looking at it, I mean, yes, you're in a commercial, uh, in a private university, but do you see the scene happening in public universities against the academia there against the uh, industry as as a whole? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point, and and really the starting point of our iLabs. Um, you know, I, th- I think if you look around the world, I mean, I spent some time in Imperial College in uh, London as well, mm. where I worked in a tech transfer office. Yeah. And it's no, not, not that's, you know, uh, different actually, because also there you have a lot of researchers, good brains in the university, good technology, but also, you know, people who don't really understand how do I bring it to the market? Exactly. How do I get actually someone to pay for this technology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so tech transfer offices are set up to, to bridge that gap, right? Um, but the tech transfer scene in Malaysia is, is a lot more nascent than it is in the UK or in the US, mm. right? So, so yeah, so we, we saw the same thing, you know, that interestingly in university, we have good talent, good technology, can't bring things to the market. But at the same time, we also have corporations that have are very successful in business, like Sunway, for example. Mm. It's very successful 13 business units now, right? We're almost like number one and number two in each vertical, mm. but we constantly need new ideas, new talents. Mm. So how do we connect the dots there? And that was really the starting point for iLabs to build a platform for researchers and students to bring their ideas into the industry, mm-hmm. but at the same time also really getting them to understand what problem are they trying to solve? What are the challenges really that need solving, right? And where you can spend a lot more more time on. And, and so that's how we got started, right? And and from there on, we, we realized that, okay, you have the students, you research, you've got the industry, but there's a plethora of startups out there as well in the ecosystem yeah. that could also solve problems for the industry. So we started to build out this ecosystem with the different players in there from governments, startups, students, as well as the industry. I, 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 I love this point. And also I want to bring back um, the conversation we had about... Um, I don't know whether you recall, we everyone wants to build an app. Any teenager oh, today yeah. wants to build an app. <laughs> and then you were sharing this, uh, this he was sh- Matt was sharing with me, MJ, about this uh, very funny thing. Uh, I want to build an app, but then what are you solving? So that was Matt's question to them. Why are you solving, right? And then he says, there's a lot of solving that needs to be done in agriculture, in you know uh, food supply chain and all these kind of things. And yeah, but who wants to do that? Who wants man? to do that is, is not sexy. So Which maybe- kid wants to do that? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe can you can you elaborate more? I mean, especially in Malaysia where we're agriculture based. I mean, we have a lot to learn from your, your home country, Netherlands, you know, biggest exporter of flowers, agriculture wise. What, what has not happened here in Malaysia that we should have emulated uh, the Netherlands in a way? Wow, that's a, that's a really big question. <laughs> but let, let me try to break that down a yeah, bit. But, yeah. um, I think like everyone wanted to build an app. Maybe that was like four or five years ago, especially then. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, when we started iLabs and we did our first accelerator program for startups. Yeah. <clears throat> most of the pitch decks that we got were big ideas around apps. Yeah. Well, I say big ideas. They were all very similar ideas, you know, like... They all want to do like a delivery app or they want to do <laughs> something that, that their neighbors or something that they heard. And it's just, I also want to do that. So at that stage, I think four or five years ago, the whole entrepreneurship scene was very glorified, right? It's like, mm. oh, cool to be an yeah, entrepreneur, true. cool to build an app. And and I think there was nothing wrong with it. Yeah. And there was maybe something that Malaysia need, needed to go through mm-hmm. to build up that culture and that people, you know, finding it, cool to be an entrepreneur and, and, and be proud of it. Yeah. 
because I think in Malaysia, like Asian culture is also very much like, oh, well, you, you know, you, you go out yourself, you don't work for a big company and you don't go through the traditional routes, right? You may not, your parents or your uncles or aunties, they may all start to, to say, hey, you know, who's this guy? You know, I like, can't get a job, you know, unemployed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas you're really working on your own startup, which, you know, you, you find very interesting. And, and so that cultural barrier, I think that was also like in the way, right? To see more startups, more entrepreneurship happening here. I see that changing now. Mm-hmm. I think over the last five years, especially where I think entrepreneurship is very much accepted, more accepted professionally. Mm-hmm. Not completely yet, but it, it's getting there. Um, but at the same time, we have to start focusing more on ideas, again, that solve real big problems in the industry. Correct. Not just an app for this or that, right? Mm. Um, I think that that's we see that changing now a bit. Um, of course, the whole digitalization has happened, right? A lot more corporates needed to digitalize their <clears throat> brick and mortar businesses, and I think a lot of startups jumped on that and actually got come up with good solutions, make good money around that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see companies like Carson, for example. Yeah. Interesting, Kasim, the founder, is an ex-Sunway student. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> and and so we, we are now working very closely with Kasim as well. But we are very proud to see that what he has built, right, being the first unicorn in Malaysia and and, and build a platform that, that really helps people. Because the problem that people face in that industry is like, how do I sell my car, right? Or how do I buy a car? Correct. If I, if I go to uh, any broker or any car workshop, I feel like I'm being... You know that they, I'm trying to. They're trying to rip me off. Right? Yes. I'm not getting a good deal. That's right. So they made that industry very transparent, mm. very data driven. Right. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious. And and so, I think that that really changed the the whole ball game for for the automotive industry. And and I think they have a lot more way to grow. Yeah. But we need to see more of those startups who see that huge problem. Yeah. And build something around it, get the traction, and then grow it up. Right. And and maybe I mean, you know, in the Netherlands, you mentioned agriculture. And of course, I think Netherlands <clears throat> became an agriculture powerhouse over the last 20 years. Yes. And um, <clears throat> I mean, interestingly, it also came, it was driven down from a policy perspective because ah. back in 2000, agriculture wasn't such a big deal. And as of course, the flower industry was, but yeah. in terms of producing vegetables and all that, still very, you know, produced enough, I think, to consume in our own country and maybe some neighboring country. Mm-hmm. But to become the second biggest export in, in the world, yeah. you need technology, right? That's right. And so the Dutch government said, what we need is we need to produce twice as much with half the resources that we have. <laughs> 2x production with 50% of the resources, yes. right? Because yeah. we're a very small country. That's right. right? You, can't, you can't, we don't have much land. And you don't have so, much arable land somewhere. That's why arable shrinking, land, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so and that's what we see now, right? Like countries like Israel or Singapore. Yeah. These are the guys where we see most innovation in the agriculture industry because they are pressurized, you know, and, and they have these constraints that they need to get around. And so technology and innovation will thrive. Mm. And then what we've seen in the Netherlands is that it didn't just grow by 2x the output, it grew by 20x. That's right. Right, and they used uh, the new uh, like urban farm technologies, greenhouses, uh, to to really achieve that. And I think I, I was very inspired by that when I went to the Netherlands. I think six, seven years ago, uh-huh. I went to visit this university called Wageningen University. Okay, another one for you to pronounce. Wageningen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Wageningen. Football players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they they are the number one university for agriculture in the world. Oh. 
And, and you know, really interesting to see that around at university, you had a whole cluster of startups, industry, investors all coming together. And it reminded me of my time in Cambridge where we mm. saw the same thing. And I think this is important for Malaysia to realize is that we need around, we don't just need big universities and a lot of students, but around a university, you need to have that knowledge transfer happening. Correct. Universities through yes. the startups, investors around to put in the money, and it all needs to sort of work in tandem, right, with each other. And 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 I think this is something that's that's growing. I think I've seen a lot of change happening over the last ten years, mm-hmm. but still something that where we can work on. Yeah. How how can okay? So let's not put all the constraints and the burden of the government of the day. Uh, maybe and and there's this um very loosely would use private part, uh, government private partnership in, in, in initiate public initiate, private uh, yeah. public private correct that's the word so where do you think the private sector can do more where do you think the government could do more in a way to to help incubate what you just uh, mentioned what was the university's name again Wageningen right Wageningen yes. yeah yeah so how can we create that what what do you think is lacking from both the private sector and also the public sector in a way yeah, oh, that's a, a big one as well. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, from the government, you know, I, I think there's a lot of incentives already in the market, right? And mm. we have good agencies like uh, MDEC, you know, Cradle, you have uh, like Magic, which is now Amranti. Yeah. Um, a lot of incentives, but maybe like the, 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 there's less focus on grants, ah. right? And then I think that's a good thing. Right. You know, like five, 10 years ago, everyone was talking about grants because that's the only way to get funding is either grants or you get a bank loan. But that's right. That's no right. bank loan wants to fund a startup, right? With, with technology as a collateral. Yes. Yes. So that has changed. And I think the, the grants have now sort of um, been replaced by more private funding. Mm. Right. And because and we've seen over the last, especially the last three, four years, more venture capital firms being set up in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, not comparable to Singapore yet, but uh, of course, that, that's not maybe a, a fair comparison. Um, we see more angel investors as well, right? More people build a successful business and they want to sort of give back and then maybe recycle not just their money, but also their knowledge in building a business. Mm, mm, mm. And and now we see different platforms like ECF, right? Uh, for P2P loans. Yes. Um, Corporates now getting into the, the business as well, having corporate venture capital arms like Sunway's uh, Sunsea Capital and our Orbit funds that, that we have, right? Mm. So in that, in that sense, I think the private industry has really stepped up. I see. Right? And, and it's really become a lot more involved in the whole startup e- innovation ecosystem. And I think that was needed, right? And then from the government's side, I think the, yeah, the policies, I think they're all there. Um, I think it's a good thing that there are maybe less grants now and less focus on grants. Cause mm-hmm. I think back in the day we had this term called grant entrepreneurs. <laughs> right, where we just like entrepreneurs nice. just like chasing for grants, right? <laughs> Going from one agency to the next. And yeah. I, I saw my fair share by my time in Platcom Ventures. And, yeah. and, and and you know, those entrepreneurs just tend not to make it. It's guys like Carson who never got a grant exactly. from anywhere, right? Yeah. But they just purely focus on solving a problem, being very obsessed about it and, and going out to the market and raising their own funds. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so in that sense, I think, um, yeah, from the government, you know, they, they should not do too much. They should just have the right policies in place and then st- take a step back you know, mm. and let the private sector take over. That, that, that's a great point. Yeah. I, I mean, 
looking at um I, I I would draw a parallel to probably public markets, public capital markets in Malaysia. The the industry that has done really, really well uh was actually the semicon and the electronic sector in Penang. I'm pretty sure you're you, I mean I'm, I think you did have a post on Chu Jen Wang, uh, the Vitrox guy. So they they didn't really get grants. Uh, they did in somewhat through tax incentives and tax breaks, but they no one bankrolled them. Uh, virtually they bootstrapped. Uh. So I think I think you made a good point. I'm, I'm just adding on to have more evidences yeah. to say that, you know, until you're you're hungry and you're focused when you're poor, not when you're rich. Yeah. Because when you're when you're given a grant, in a way you're rich, and then you start to do kind of silly things. Yeah, I, I think it also gives the the idea, and you can correct me wrong, that money kind of solves your problem when really that's not the issue, right? Usually you need, like money can only solve certain problems. Will you, will you say that to be the case? Oh yeah, money is important. I mean, like, and like I experienced in my startup, right? If we had enough capital, we, we would maybe be successful yeah. at that time, right? Because we would be able to pivot the, the business. So most startups, they fail because they run out of cash. Mm, but right. the best way for getting money is getting customers money, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yes. that, that, that is recurring revenue. That is money that, that keeps building up. And, and they don't ask for a board seat, right? The they, customers. Don't. <laughs> yeah. they don't ask for a board seat and they don't ask for like uh, reports every yeah. month, yeah. you know, like, like, right. like some grants we would do, right? So... Uh, the best source of money is still from customers yeah. and building a business. It's interesting you mentioned about Vitrox, right? Yeah. And, um, I mean, in some ways, a similar example. Like, yeah. talk to our senior management, they would never have raised venture capital in the past, right? Mm -hmm. They got bank loans, maybe. Yes. But a lot of business grew organically. Correct. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really how... We've grown in some way from construction to development to healthcare, education, all grown organically. Yes. Right? And, and I think that sense of building a solid business around solid fundamentals, looking at PL, yes, is something that sometimes needs to be pumped back into like the current entrepreneurs. Right? Correct, correct. And, and not just thinking about oh, I'm, I need to raise my A rounds, then yeah. I need to my B rounds, yeah. C rounds, the Y rounds, yeah. I have to ask you very curious from the perspective of you know someone uh who migrate I know you're Malaysianized, but uh, you, you know you've not been here since the beginning right so I just want to get your your, your thoughts on um, what really surprised you about you know running iLabs when you're looking at all these Malaysian entrepreneurs and their ideas that you didn't expect when you started iLabs what was really unexpected great question yeah wow yeah very good question as well what I didn't expect. Good and bad. You know, one of the things <laughs> I think from yeah from from running iLabs in the beginning, right? So in the beginning, we were very focused on um, student programs, entrepreneurship programs, right, right? and mm -hmm. educating entrepreneurs. We still do, but that's now one of our divisions. Okay. Right? Whereas we now do also venture capital. Uh, we have our own uh, uh, talent school for a coding school, like a forty-two KL. Yeah. But when I when I was looking at the talents, the students, they they um, they're very academically inclined, right? And I think getting good marks is like really the prime reason why they are in the university. And I think there was very little interest, I think, to do extracurricular things mm. beyond that. Um, and then I think from an entrepreneurship perspective, you know, we wanted to buoy more students, really, to learn and learn about like, you know, doing a business model canvas, building a startup. The interest was there. I think there was an underlying 
interest, but it was not a priority, mm. right? And 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 you know what really struck me, and you know, and maybe you guys can resonate with this, is that a lot of the students when they came in in one of our programs or they helped out to run like a a pitch competition or a hackathon. They were not really interested in the process or networking and meeting people. They were interested in getting a certificate. At the That's end of it. right. Oh yes, and I was we like, highly well, resonating. This, this <laughs> was know, built into to us when we, we were, were seven. Actually, That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized also getting kids myself and going through these preschools that a lot of parents ask for these certificates even when they're four years old. And then <laughs> I was like, what is this? Because, you know, when, when I started recruit people and then they come for an interview and they bring this whole pile of, <laughs> of certificates from whatever classes or programs or organizations, I don't care. I don't really care. What, just tell me about you, you know, yeah. about your story and, and what you've done, you know. But these certificates, I think people are really ways too obsessed about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I really love that you brought this up because, I mean... Um, MJ Agent didn't finish his college in a way. And 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 you know, there's a stigma. Uh, sad, sad to say there's a stigma around it. And sometimes it's like, where's where's your cert? You know, where's where, where's your tertiary education? And here, here we have people in Facebook that, you know, you you if you have a CV, which is your CV is virtually a, a code that you wrote, I don't care where where, where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, it's so interesting that uh you brought up Project 42, because I read about them on Fortune. Um, I don't know whether, MJ, if you heard of Project no. 42. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, they actually bring homeless people to code. So it, it's like you you do not have to need the, to have a good pedigree of a high school, whatsoever, good grades, but as long as you're willing to code, willing to learn, that that then you get a chance, you know. Uh, is that is that uh, why, why Project 42 was built back here in Malaysia? And then is that uh, the right interpretation I put up, Matt? Yeah, so one of the, yeah, I mean, it's definitely cor correctly uh, yeah. pointed out. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons why we were interested in 42 was, um, first of all, we were working with a lot of startups and uh, fast-growing tech companies. And mm -hmm. a lot of them came to me and said, Matt, you know, I know you have a computer science degree, you know, you have good students coming out, but they are not ready to be plugged into the workforce. Mm -hmm. They need to be uh, upskilled or reskilled or sometimes like unlearn certain things that they yeah. learn. Then you like, think what's the point? Universe. Yeah, exactly. It's like a, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, 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 we, so there were not enough talents, right? With, with the right skills, and um, and so we were looking for coding schools, and, mm. and most coding schools were still teaching in front of the class, telling students what to do, and you learn, you know, after that, right? Going through curriculum and all that, very traditional. But what we saw in 42, which came out of Paris, was there's no teachers, mm. there's no classrooms, and there's also no tuition fee for mm. the students. Yes. And as you said, uh, John, you know, like the students don't need any background, no certification, no degree whatsoever is required. Yes. And when I first heard that, when the French first pitched that to me, I was like, they must be smoking something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How is this possible? You know, like, so, so I flew out to Paris and uh, met the guys there. And I, I was really like, you know, like, blown away when yeah. I saw what sort of talents they were building yes. and how the school has grown into Silicon Valley, Brazil, other European countries. And, you know, companies like LinkedIn, Facebook, 
um, yeah, all the big tech companies, Twitter, they were recruiting from 42. Correct. Not because they have very good degrees or certificates, but, but they can do shit. Yeah, exactly. No, they, they, they really learn by doing. And you know what's interesting is, is that it's because there's no teachers. Yes. Right? So there's two ways to learn. You either figure it out from YouTube or, or Google it, or you, or you learn from the guy next to you. Correct. Right? It's peer-to-peer -peer education. And I think... That is really how tech companies work. That's right. There's little people around you, so you solve problems together. Yes. Right? And that's how you learn how to, to, to build code or solutions around. Yes. And so it doesn't really matter what language of code you're writing first, but it's about the attitude. It's about the mindset, right? Precisely. On the problem solving. And we really love that, the, the, what they had done, you know, around the world. You know, and I think they're now in 30 countries. Yeah. And, and currently we have uh, more than 120 full-time students. That were selected from 4,000 students that applied. Wow. And interestingly, from the 120, 40% is from the B40. Fantastic. And that was one of the questions. I mean, first of all, we were like, well, is this the kind of program that will work in Malaysia where people are being spoon-fed, right, since day, day one? Yeah. Can people really learn themselves by doing? Yeah. And uh, the answer is yes. There are people who are really hungry to do it by themselves. Yeah. And the second one was like, can we reach out to the B40 and, and population that, that can't afford a normal education? Correct. Correct. And again, you know, like these, these people are super hungry and they, they can learn really fast by doing. Yes. And now we are placing them in industry with a big, like big banks, logistics players like DHL is an anchor partner. Carsim is one of our anchor partners. Wow. They are also looking to recruit from them. So we're really changing the entire talent development and tech development industry, right, by, by this program. But a lot more needs to be done. You know, we need a lot more because 120 full-time is not going to make a difference. Oh, yeah, we need it's not. Yeah. 120,000, you know, uh, students. Which is why I have to ask, right, because uh, you've clearly identified a huge problem that is decades long, actually, in Malaysia, which is this whole spoon-feeding, you know, uh, certificate obsession culture. And, um, and you used earlier on that a lot of these people and parents in Malaysia, they are they, they really don't care about the process, right? <laughs> How do you shift the attention? Obviously you won't do it alone, but what do you think is the right solution or solutions for the nation or for someone as an individual who perhaps you identify as someone who is certificate obsessed, who yeah. is, you know, uh, you know, just give me the paper. How do you shift them and say, hey, you know, you know what? You know, the process is actually more important. Yeah, I, I think it's just being open-minded, right? I mean, I think the mindset is really important to try out different things. And maybe maybe in, in classes, right? Maybe already in, because you know, when, you think about, when you think about it, right? Your tertiary education in university, sometimes it's too late to change people's mindset. Oh yeah, you're right, you're right. I Absolutely. think it needs to start at the grassroots, right? From, you know, the primary schools, your secondary schools. They already need to start, you know, run things like hackathons and do some coding programs. And it needs to be part and parcel of your day-to-day -day education because then it becomes muscle memory. Mm. People will remember it, right? And, and I think then it's really when you can start seeing change happen. That's right. If you're going to wait until someone matures, it's, it's, it's too late sometimes. Leopard Not for everyone, spots. maybe, right? People can still turn things around. Yeah. But I think really to have a much bigger impact, I, I think the education curriculum needs to, to change, right? And you need to start giving people time, giving students time to, to explore, right, what they can do and, and, and to, to expose them to new technology, 
right? Um, I think that's probably the, the the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I probably, uh, in, in essence of time, I probably have to ask one last question. Then definitely a round two because yeah. there's many more questions I want to ask. STEM versus arts versus TVET in Malaysia, Matt. Related to your last point, where do you think our efforts should be poured in um, based on Malaysia as the economic, um, the, based on the economic activities we have, based on our culture and the nuance, and linking back to, you know, we shouldn't wait until they're into the tertiary because there's always this stigma, you know, so you, you brought this, this obsession about certificates. And it's actually very related to, I, I, I don't know about your, uh, your wife and maybe she can relate this experience. Once you reach upper secondary, uh, there's a streaming process where you do your PMR. I don't know what is it called now. SPT3, SPT3 I PT3. think. If you don't do well, uh, you go to an arts class and you're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you go to a science class, you're smart, right? So so you see, and, and you know, oh, you go to a vocational school. Oh, you mean you're the lousy ones? You know? Yeah, you couldn't, even in vocational <laughs> school, you couldn't get into, you know, the academic line or correct, something. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah. So, so, you know, probably we end the podcast with, with your answer, right? And then we'll, we'll go on to part two. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I think that, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's definitely a stigma around it. Uh, I mean, let's talk about TVET yeah. first, right? Maybe because we talk about 42, which I think is very much TVET. Um, Precisely. Um, if you look at Germany, right, countries like Germany, uh, where TVET is is huge. Yes. Right? And, and you know, the students that, that graduate from TVET schools have the best jobs right? yeah. in, in, in companies like Siemens. And, you know, and guess what? These companies are actually waiting outside of the gates of these colleges yes. to recruit the students. Correct. Because they can build things, right? Yes. They are really necessary to grow industries, right? Especially focus on manufacturing and engineering. That's right. Um, problem in Malaysia is, again, the stigma, as you said. If you don't go into university, you must be stupid, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, but, yeah. TFED, I think, needs to be maybe rebrand it mm. because even TVET, I think that because people have that perception, oh, you must be just a mechanic or just a whatever yeah. tech in a way, you know, like in, in tech skills are also part of a TVET education, but maybe we need to come up with a sexier name for TVET, right? So that people are more, feel more aspirational about going into like a school like that. Mm. And I think that's part of the job what we are doing now. And part of the challenge is just to, to, to map out this trajectory and to say, okay, if you go through 42KL, you learn for one year or two years, you work with the industry, you get a job. Yeah. I mean, around the world is almost like hundred percent of all the students got a placement with one of the really top tech companies. Right. Mm, mm. Or they started their own business, successful startups came out of it. Yeah. But only until you have these case studies and you can actually show that trajectory, mm. people start believing that. Right? Yeah, that's right. So I think that's the art challenge that we are, you know, fighting against in a way, right? That people only think, oh, you must go through accounting. Then you have to join the big four yeah. uh, uh, companies. And only then you are perceived in your family, at least, as successful, right? <laughs> Whereas there's many other routes that you can take. Um, so that's TVET. I think STEM, <clears throat> STEM is something very interesting, something I'm personally very interested in as well. Mm. But it's, I think it's one of those areas where if you want to innovate and you want to elevate your, your, your national income to, uh, to a high income uh, nation, mm -hmm. STEM is going to be crucial, right? Yeah. And STEM, you know, encompasses science, technology, engineering, maths. I would say arts should also be part of the, 
because arts is also woven into STEM. I think people call it STEAM in other countries. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, so, th- so I think that's, um, yeah, something I think in Malaysia we can do much more about. I mean, it's frightening sometimes when you hear how little in secondary schools students spend on actually doing science experiments. Oh, yes, yes. How little money or how poor some lab facilities are, right? That's the people really get exposed by doing things, by building stuff. Correct. I mean, for, for myself, I only got interested into science in, in, in university because that's when I started to do some cooler things, right? Mm. Uh, rather than small, small, small stuff, you know? So I think it's important that you do that. You give students the right tools, yep. right? To experiments, but it also needs to be framed around concepts, right? Around you know, big challenges again, right? That, that can be solved or stories, right? That make people feel like, hey, I now I understand science. Mm. If there's a story built around it, um, people understand. I mean, just to give you an example, right? Like my wife and I founded a company called Science Bridge Academy, mm. um, I think seven years ago. Okay. My wife is still running it. Um, and started out simply by running enrichment classes for STEM. Wow. And, and one of the workshops we ran and we still do is a, a workshop called CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. Okay, that's cool. And the st- students had to solve like murder mysteries, you know. <laughs> okay. And, you know, they have to use a microscope to find at a crime scene, like some some uh, some material that they found to see whether it's from the perpetrator or not. They have to take DNA samples and, you know, do some experiments around it. So they do a lot of experiments, but at the same time, there's a story around it, okay. right? And there's something that they can solve, something that they love doing. This is something that's really important, you know, again, you know, to, to really embed that within the education system, because if not, it just becomes like something, oh, I must go to school. I must memorize something yeah. and I regurgitate it during my exam. Yes. And, and guess what? I mean, how much do you remember from your, <laughs> I don't. from your high school, you know, from your exam? <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you already have a next client. I'm going to send my, my kids over. <laughs> I didn't even realize this thing ever. <laughs> yeah. So um, in interest of time, uh, Matt, I think, uh, any last questions? For I, actually, I have one and uh, I'm uh, just, Take as short as you need to answer. Um, the the part where John mentioned earlier on that uh, you send your kids to Chinese school, right? Yes, I, I found it very interesting. Uh, what was what's the the thought process behind that? Are you muted? You're yeah. muted. Yeah. Very very simple. Uh, I I just listened to my wife. Okay, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> didn't think, I'm not sure. Are you married, MJ? No, 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 no. I'm not, okay, I'm not yeah, or maybe John can resonate yeah. with yeah, this. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Fi- you can't you can't win every battle at home. Correct, you know? right. things, your wife just needs to make the decision. Others, you you have to make the decision. But but you know, like I, in a way, I mean, I'm joking a bit, right? Because uh, we, we I did look at it, different options, but uh, I, I do believe Chinese is a very important language. Mm. It's becoming increasingly important in business as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really good foundation uh, f- for the kids. I like also that it's a bit structured, right? Like, and uh, especially the beginning years. Yeah. Um, but the concern I have is that maybe it's sometimes too structured, right? Too yes. tough, too, yes. too, too academic too from the beginning, yes. too rigid. And so it's important that if you do send your kids to a Chinese school, like, like we do, that you also give them opportunities to have a football class or a music class or to do some enrichment for STEM mm. to explore themselves a little bit more. But uh, I mean, interestingly, I asked my daughter, right? Um, she's eight. 
And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to do everything online. Yeah. So I asked her, she just went to Chinese school for one year, right? So I asked her, so what, what, what do you like more, right? Do you like the physical class or do you like the online class in uh-huh. Chinese school? And she said, like, daddy, that's a silly question. <laughs> of course, I like my online class better. <laughs> it's like, why? Said, why, why is that? So because, you know, like online class teacher cannot beat me through the screen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice, nice. That, that, but, that's uh, a... Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we'll see, probably do the Chinese school for a few years, get some foundation, but maybe we do other things after that. Yeah, we, yeah. we haven't decided yet. Great, great. So Matt, it's been a pleasure. I, I'm, I'm craving for more now. So we definitely have to yeah. schedule part two. Um, and, uh, you know, um, uh, for the viewers out there, if you enjoyed this conversation with Matt, you, you've um, gotten some insights to the startup scene, more so on the education system as well. Um, you know, do hit that like, subscribe button, hit that notification and where, bell. Yeah, where can, uh, where people, can people find, find you, yeah. uh, Matt, most importantly? Yeah. You can, uh, easiest is on LinkedIn, right? Uh, under my name, Matt von Lever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll put a link in the comment section below. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, yeah. Matt, um, MJ. Well, excellent, man. I'm looking forward to part two for sure. Yeah, too short. Yeah. Too short. It's definitely yeah, too short. I know. I enjoyed uh, talking to you guys. Uh, or maybe next time over coffee as well. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, so uh, thank you all. And I'll see you guys in the next video. Bye-bye. Thank all right. You. Take care. All right. Bye.